I remember a time when journalism was different. It was a battle to find the truth, not a fight over what is the truth. It was the first draft of history, not a first draft of competing fictions. It was cold, rational reporting, not heated partisan polemic. Indian journalism has always been mediocre, but there was a time when the intent, at least, was to get at the facts, not to push specific narratives. From facts to narratives, from asking measured questions to shouting, 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 from being a corrective to politics to becoming a tool of politics. How did we get here? What happened? Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen, our weekly podcast on economics, politics, and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to The Seen and the Unseen. I'm a 70s kid, like my guest on today's show, Nidhi Rasan. When we grew up in the 80s and 90s, there was a broad consensus on what the facts were. And while everyone distrusted politics, we more or less trusted the media. It might often have been inept, mostly mediocre, but it was well-intentioned. All that has now changed. Our media is a mess, especially news television, but not only news television. I have watched this as an alarmed observer on the sidelines, writing columns and pontificating from a distance, but never really in the thick of the battlefield. Nidhi has been in the middle of the action, though, helping us to figure out a changing India since she first joined NDTV in 1999. NDTV, the training ground for so many prominent journalists, once looked like it would set the benchmark for good reporting. Now, it looks like an outlier in these shrill, polarized times. Nidhi, for these 21 years, has embodied that cliché about how journalists must comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. But the comfortable are not comfortable with being afflicted. And independent journalism in India is being attacked in so many different ways. Nidhi is now headed to Harvard to teach journalism there. And I managed to catch her in the transition to share her insights on the scene and the unseen. Before we get to the conversation, though, let's take a quick commercial break. In the last few months, I have spent hundreds if not thousands of hours watching TikTok. You might consider it an addiction and indeed TikTok always gets my dopamine going. I don't call this addiction though, I call it sociological research or even taking one for the team. I have designed a new course called TikTok and Indian Society and I invite you to be part of it. I believe that TikTok reflects the real India better than any other outlet for news and entertainment. Our mainstream sources of news and entertainment are controlled by elites who just don't get small town India or village India or poor India or even young aspirational India. Because TikTok has blown away these barriers and given the means of production to everyone, it has empowered people who otherwise did not have a voice or a platform. And I'm blown away by the talent I see every day on this app. And my eyes are also opened to so many shades and nuances of India that I had not noticed before. We see the worst of India in our prejudices and attitudes, but also the best in our creativity and our dissent. My course is unique as it will be conducted, surprise, surprise, on WhatsApp and will involve both my thoughts on the many themes I discuss as well as hundreds of amazing videos that illustrate my points. I am charging rupees 5000 for this course. Do head on over to seenunseen.in slash TikTok to enroll for TikTok and Indian Society. My new course over at seenunseen.in slash TikTok. 
Nidhi, welcome to the scene in the unseen. Thanks so much for having me, Amit. Nidhi, before we get to sort of talking about journalism and your career in journalism, uh, tell me a bit about sort of your life before that. Like your dad, of course, was uh, Maharaj Krishan Razan, who used to be editor in chief of PTI, noted journalist. Uh, you know, you grew up across the world in. uh london and in new york and i read somewhere that you wanted to be a doctor when you were a kid not a journalist so you you know tell me a bit about that what were your sort of formative influences like and why did you decide to turn to journalism so yeah that doctor thing is funny because uh, well first like all children i wanted to be an astronaut and that pretty much died by the time i turned 12 because i realized i didn't like flying very much so outer space was really out of my league and then yeah i kind of got interested in medicine and i took up science uh, we'd moved back to india and i took up science as my um, stream of uh, study in classes 11 and 12 and i remember my dad coming to me and saying why do you want to spend so many years of your life studying do something creative and uh, you know my mother was shocked she's like how can you tell your daughter who wants to take up this noble profession uh, like a good kashmiri girl you know she wants to be a doctor and you know he he said it because you know when he was in school and college he never wanted to be a doctor or an engineer which was the only thing that kashmiri parents wanted their kids to do and i think he was very keen that i do something creative and uh, then around that time when i actually joined college which was lsr television started to become big you know ndtv was um, i mean there was the world this week and ndtv had come on to star news and so tv was becoming more and more interesting and my mother said that would you ever be interested in this and i realized that actually i would because i guess without realizing it we grew up in a household where news was just part of life like brushing your teeth you know you get up in the morning read the newspaper you have to watch the evening news at night and so i always enjoyed keeping up with current affairs but i didn't want to follow my dad's footsteps and become a print journalist because i thought there would be too many comparisons so i was reluctant at first but when i realized that there was another medium by which to do journalism which would be something i could claim as my own that is why you know broadcasting happened and that's how it happened and what were sort of your formative influences there like i mean this in two senses one of course is in the narrow sense of after you want to be a journalist who are you looking at as role models and where are you sort of imbibing those values from but also in a broader sense you know intellectually what were your influences you know what were the books you remember from that time which maybe shaped the way you uh, thought about the world and so on well i think obviously my dad was a big influence in terms of just journalistic ideals and values and he's always been someone who's really been an ideal journalist in that way and someone i've really looked up to but i remember as as a kid growing up in the us reading about watergate and uh, uh, you know looking at journalist broadcasters like sam donaldson you know there was that famous you know hold on mr president he even wrote a book by that title and you know that that really stuck with me as a kid that you know a reporter can you know stop the leader of the free world and say you know hold on you have to answer my question you know and and that's how powerful journalism is and and how it should be unfortunately nobody does that here and nobody would but these were some of the things that really influenced me growing up watching broadcasters like sam donaldson like tom brokaw and seeing the kind of journalism that they did and it's so different to what we see on tv on indian tv today certainly and of course seeing it in my own home and how much of a difference did it make you know relative to your colleagues for example the fact that you know you spent time in london and new york growing up that you know your father of course was a journalist and you were exposed to perhaps much more than 
many of your colleagues might have been like you know i remember when i was like i'm also a 70s kid like you and when i was growing up in the 80s and the 90s print journalism was considered sort of a last resort you fail to do your medical and your exactly. engineering and blah 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 and print journalism was uh, in the last resort and you know at all my time in journalism i've sort of bemoaned the poor editorial standards and writing standards and all of that tv was different because tv was new it appeared like there was a brash new generation coming up and within that you were someone who had you know perhaps a little more uh, a slightly different experience uh, while growing up in terms of exposure to media and culture and so on did that make much of a, a difference per se and within television did you feel that uh you know you were a lot apart from uh, the older school the print journalists you know the thing is that uh i think the kind of childhood i had was very privileged and i was really lucky that i had it for both me and my brother it was as you rightly said it it just exposes you to a completely different world i was four plus when we moved to england and so i did my initial sort of nursery schooling here and uh you know my whole world view of things i think for all of us our early childhood and our uh, and, and those those formative years are really important in terms of how we uh, our values are shaped how we look at the world and perhaps the most important so especially in the us because by the time i was in uh, new york you know i was in a class of people where everybody was uh, everyone was basically an immigrant you know i i grew up in a vibrant city where you know my best friend was an african american another close friend of mine who's still my closest friend today half bangladeshi half german uh, a very sort of eclectic you know childhood in that sense in, in terms of the people you interacted with grew up with so i've had a very liberal outlook towards life towards everything as a result of that so that really shaped me and schooling there was very very different and coming back to india was actually very hard amit because you know the school system here was different the emphasis on rote learning etc that wasn't something that i was used to though i did pretty well as a student here also also the language because you know i'm a kashmiri so in my house we grew up speaking kashmiri always and we grew up uh, speaking english obviously but uh, hindi is not our mother tongue in that sense so hindi for me was you know amitabh bachchan films and you know stuff like his dialogues in hindi movies which i really enjoyed but i wasn't fluent at all in hindi and so when i came back i was 13 and it was really hard but uh you know getting rid of my american accent so that i could fit in with people to fit in with my classmates because you you really feel like an outsider i didn't know what antakshari was because that was like a, it, it, those were the nice days you know when kids actually played antakshari and stuff like that when they were like <laughs> 14 so you know like i i didn't know all those hindi songs i watched hindi movies but because i wasn't comfortable with the language but i'm proud of the fact that when i did decide to take that plunge into tv and all of that you know when i, I was in college and i would read the navbharat times every sunday out loud with a hindi english dictionary next to me because i knew that if i have to be a broadcaster if i have to be a journalist period in this country i have to know hindi and i have to know it well enough to be able to communicate on air and i did it and i anchored i w- i have been a bilingual anchor and reporter all these years i anchored on our hindi channel for many years i've anchored the us elections with pankaj pachauri in hindi with vikram chandra in hindi i've anchored the budget in hindi and i'm really really proud that i was able to do that because this it wasn't easy it wasn't the language that sort of came naturally 
Yeah, and and you know they often say of cricketers when they play a beautiful shot that oh he makes it look so easy, and I think one can have the sort of the same impression about news anchors not realizing that sort of hard work that uh, uh, goes in behind the scenes. I'm just thinking aloud. I was you know when you mentioned how your cosmopolitan background and you know being in a school in New York that had I mean which is basically a city of immigrants shaped your outlook to the world. And just thinking aloud, I'm therefore wondering that how true would you say from all your experiences of meeting people. throughout uh, the last 20 something years which is such a core part of your job how true is it would you say that people are often shaped by their circumstances that their ideology can come out of what they have been exposed to and are there for example the other thought that sort of strikes me is that despite the kashmiri pandit background you don't sort of have the resentments that many kashmiri pandits do for you know understandable reasons in their case what are your thoughts on this Well, I agree with that. Right, I do think the circumstances we are exposed to shape who we are. And for instance, on the Kashmiri Pandit question, I'll tell you something. I mean, I think it's because you know, my, my, it's not that my family wasn't affected by it. It was my grandparents had to leave with their bags packed overnight and flee. And uh, my father and my mother would always tell my brother and me that look. we shouldn't blame entire communities for what happened my father still has a very romantic notion of how he grew up in kashmir and he truly believes i know a lot of kashmiri pandits don't and they get they get angry when when some of us say this but he truly believes in that idea of kashmiriyat that his best friends growing up were muslims and whenever we would visit kashmir every year we would always go to khir bhawani which is our most revered temple there but on the way back we would also go to hazrat bal mosque to the shrine and offer prayers there as well and my parents would always say my dad in particular that you know this is who we are this is how we must respect all religions and that yes a lot of things happened during the pandit exodus which have made people angry and bitter for understandable reasons but that you know the muslim community has also suffered that we cannot tarnish an entire community etc so i've grown up with those values and i guess i don't blame those uh, from my community who have actually borne the brunt of that exodus and the kind of atrocities that happened with them and their families obviously you know uh, they are they are shaped by that anger they are shaped by that very deep and real pain that they went through so i don't think that i can sit in judgment on you know how they feel but at the same time i'm proud of the fact that i do meet many of those they may not be vocal on twitter like some others but i do meet many kashmiri pandits also who, who despite having gone through what they have are you know sort of willing to to heal and heal together and i would hope that that sentiment would eventually prevail I was going to ask a question about this towards the end of the show, but as we've brought up Kashmir, I'll ask it now. I just want to quote from the introduction you wrote for your book, Left, Right, or Center, where you spoke about how when you uh, went to uh, Srinagar to shoot your documentary there, and you've written, "quote When I reached Srinagar, many people already recognized me from television. They knew I was a Kashmiri pundit. At first, I was wary, my mother's fears ringing in my head, but very soon that fear dissipated. I was welcomed warmly, like a long-lost daughter who had finally come home. And with that, my faith in the idea." of kashmiriyat and the idea of india was restored just a little stop quote and elsewhere in the introduction you talk about how gurmeher kaur who lost her father in combat at uh, kargil in 99 once when she was chatting with her mom about it her mom said that listen pakistan didn't kill him war did and you know there's also the story about yogendra yadav who after what his family had suffered during partition was uh, named salim you know that was his uh, middle name which is again such a beautiful 
sentiment and it seems to me and uh, you know i've also traveled through pakistan covering cricket and all that and it seems to me that you know despite all the harsh shrill angry rhetoric that is there in the airwaves and so on when you actually go down to the level of the common person these tribal distinctions don't seem to matter so much there's another strand that kind of plays out why do you think it is then that when it comes to the media or it's the ugliness that gets accentuated and exacerbated I think that's just the nature of the medium Amit and the fact is that social media in particular is a uh, is a medium in which ugliness gets amplified to infinity you know and it brings out i think the worst in people it also brings out a lot of good in people i'm not saying that but you know honestly i i remember i mean i'm in that generation like you you know we we had life without social media and it was so much simpler when you look back uh, so much nicer and uh, and and now look how complicated and um, you know mentally exhausting it is and i just think that that's that just brings out the worst in all of us and i agree with you i mean like when you actually talk to people on the ground the sentiments will be very different from what the establishment uh you, you know will actually do pakistan is is a prime example of that i have friends who are pakistanis very good people and who are brave enough to take on the isi and their own army very publicly journalists in particular in fact i think their media is far more free frankly and brave than ours and that's another story but you know even in kashmir my own experiences have been like that but uh, you know i mean social media tends to reduce everything to these dangerous binaries which in itself is another conversation. Yeah, and we'll come to that a little later. Let's go to your early days in television in the 90s, which is, of course, before social media. And, you know, sort of as a viewer watching the evolution of television, I remember it from the early days when Pranoroy did The World This Week, which was, you know, this one-hour weekly thing we all used to look forward to on the only channel we had. And uh, then, uh, you know, I remember the video news magazine, News Track, used to come out, and there was such a leisurely pace to everything. And you've also spoken about how when you first joined uh news television people had so much more time to do their stories you had a couple of days or you know longer to put a single story together you know tell me a bit about what those early days were like like you know you obviously joined ntv as a bright eye 21 year old what did you expect what did you find was different what did you learn in those early years before things started changing in the 2000s you know it was so different i joined in 1999 and those were like the golden days of television and i've seen I've seen the whole transition from that into what has happened now which is both sad and you know strange but the early days were incredible because there was a lot of idealism there was not that kind of cutthroat competition from other news channels and honestly NDTV was and in my view continues to be uh, the best television news organization i mean there is no i mean it's not a coincidence that all the major sort of players on the television news broadcasting stage in india today have their origins in ndtv some good and some not so good and you know who i mean so, <laughs> but you know the basic training they all came from the ndtv stable by and large you know so it was incredible because this was an organization at that time that was you know we had money we had resources we had the platform you know you could spend days traveling for a story like i said earlier as you pointed out you would spend time on that story there was a whole series we used to do for many years actually called india matters where all of us would take turns every month for one week in a month we'd be assigned to india matters where we traveled into rural india and in sort of uncovering india invisible going beyond the regular politics the day to day stuff that happened in delhi 
And, you know, you had the budgets for that, you know. I remember when I joined, I spent just two, three weeks in orientation, which was great. I mean, you know, you, you're actually being taught now. There is no time for this orientation. Our new reporters who come, come, they train for a few days and bam, you know, you're out in the field because there's no time. But uh, those were different days, you know, you, you were leisurely taught about how editing is done, camera work is done, etc. And, you know, I, I walked into Pranoy's room one day and I said, um, can I go to Tibet? I want to do a documentary there. And Pranoy was like, yeah, of course you should apply for a visa. I did. And I got a visa like a year later and I went. So, <laughs> you know, um, I can't do that now. Nobody can because there ain't no money for that kind of stuff now. But, you know, I, one day I went in, you know, I said, I, I'd like to go to Iran. And I, if I get an interview with the foreign minister, can I stay back for a week and do a documentary? Of course you can. I went. I did that. And, uh, you know, shot there for like seven, eight days. That was an adventure, you know, came back, put it on air. So I think, I mean, those were really the golden days, like I said. And that's, of course, linked to the financial health of an organization, among other things. And over time, uh, you know, things for the media as a whole have become much more difficult. And we know we know that. Yeah, and we'll discuss sort of the transitional points. But uh, I have a newbie question, which is that even then, you know, uh, NDTV was, of course, a 24-hour channel. So what gave you guys, you know, the luxury to sort of take so much time and do so much thoughtful work and do, do the sort of stuff that you did with, uh, you know, Uncovering India and so on? Did you have more people? Was it just more budgets? Was the news structured differently? What was so different? It was structured differently also, Amit, because you didn't have bulletins like every hour. You know, you had them, I remember, alternate hours and then the flagship bulletin was your nine o'clock. You... Um, had more people, you had more budgets, so you could actually spare a bunch of reporters to be doing something completely different. Somebody on an investigation for Star News Sunday, which was uh, like, you know, your long format magazine show on Sundays. Uh, you had people you could spare for India Matters, which was a completely different team altogether. So it's all those things together, which which made it possible to... And because you didn't have that sort of some other channel breathing down your neck, uh, and those kind of rivalries, you could actually, I mean, I spent three days doing a rainwater harvesting story, for God's sake. <laughs> I was damn proud of, you know, but that was a new thing then, you know. And uh, I was like, uh, you know, I, I showcased what rainwater harvesting was about. Um, I think one of my, I think the first story I did a P2C for, if I'm not mistaken, was uh about condom vending machines in government offices which is super awkward to shoot because of people <laughs> that I had to interview but i spent two days on that i didn't have to like i didn't have to rush into it and do it in two hours you know so uh i mean like nowadays there's no question yaar even i would tell a reporter yaar ye to do ghante ki story hai jaldi kar le what do you need some bites and you know some shots and laga do so none of that then you know, there was a very nice feature on John Stewart in the New York Times. And uh, I'll quote from something he said with struck a chord, where he said, quote, 24-hour news networks are built for one thing, and that's 9-11. There are very few events that would justify being covered 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So in the absence of urgency, they have to create it. You create urgency through conflict. Stop, quote. And, you know, as this sort of process started playing out, 
how did it affect you was it sort of frustrating because then the pressure on the channel becomes to amplify every damn little thing that you cover which means that you know one everything is shallow because you're spending less time on it and two you can't go deep into you know areas which may not be of interest to mass viewers like rainwater harvesting i presume how was that process like in coming to terms with it i completely agree with what john stewart has said there and that is part of the problem that well the uh, two things in india frankly unfortunately for whatever reason you don't even have to manufacture urgent news because there's always something happening but the fact is on a serious note that even the most sort of anodyne news items which can just pass off as a graphic or be put on the ticker increasingly i found in the last few years in particular there is a thing about nini but we need an ob on this right now are bhai it's not that big a story nahi but because the other channel is doing it we we need to like stay with this for like 10 minutes and play it up and you know get reactions from xyz and sometimes you don't even get a chance to process you know what it is that you are doing an ob on you know like one day i was suddenly asked to anchor on an rbi press conference and i actually i said no because i said i am not an expert on the rbi and let's not pretend that anchors know everything my expertise is in politics and foreign policy you want me to you know come on and do something on that i'll be happy to because that's what i've done my entire life but i'm not suddenly going to be an expert on the repo rate which frankly i need to read about and understand I, i'm not going to pretend i know anything about it so we're in that age amit right now where everything is like is is big you know and for me personally that is part of the reason why i became extremely tired of it you know in the last few years while i love television and i've actually walked away from television from the best prime time slot that one could have i mean you know some people say that i mean what else do you want great executive editor 9 o'clock slot it's not that it's just that the nature of the medium now just doesn't let you breathe anymore you know and you just it's just constant there is i mean your brain just doesn't stop working it's exhausting it really is and television has just become like this competitive thing to put your senior anchors on air for everything every small thing is now a big thing so i think that's you know something we all need to reflect on but that's the way it is now with so many news channels out there and i once did an episode with ashok malik where he gave me an interesting insight onto this race to the bottom where he said that you know when you have channels paying such enormous license fees to just get into the business you know the pressure to recoup is immense so they have no choice but to sort of chase trps in this uh, a uh, sort of frenetic race and then everybody gets caught up in that and there's no getting out you know do you think structural reasons are like that are part of the problem that because the uh, entry barriers are so high once you get in you cannot really chase a niche and you know do whatever you you know do rainwater harvesting stories for example well why not i mean it it did work for us it's not i mean ndtv is india's most trusted news brand repeatedly for a reason so i think it's not that it didn't work and look these bark trps frankly are trps that ndtv has challenged all the time they don't make any sense if you if you look at how our shows do on youtube for instance or even tata sky the numbers are completely different from what bark puts out so there's so much i mean ndtv's gone public with this about the kind of manipulation that happens you know with ratings uh, so i do think that at least there used to be a space for this and i'd like to believe that there is you know still space for it although sometimes one gets so disheartened that even during something like this coronavirus pandemic when tv viewership has jumped 
immensely across the board because people were in lockdown, they were at home, people wanted information. If your bark ratings are still reflecting that Republican times now are your leading news channels, then I begin to wonder the choices that people are making. You know, and is this what they wanted to see? Because those channels were not giving you information. They were still doing Tablighi Jamaat 24 hours a day. And is that what people want to see? So I said, you know, a lot of these numbers don't make sense to me just because of how they just don't add up. You know, they, they actually don't add up. If you just look at online and how we're doing online and how we're doing on bar. Uh, so I don't know. I, I still think there is space for this kind of good journalism. And and that's why NDTV will not become tabloid. It is not going to be tabloid. It's not been easy for us. But uh, NDTV would never take the sort of Times Now route. We're just genetically completely different. And one of the shifts I've noticed over the past two decades, exacerbated by social media, but, uh, you know, it began even before that, was that, you know, when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was a broad consensus on the truth. There wasn't a dispute about what is actually happening. You know, your different media outlets may chase different angles or have different opinions on something. But, you know, the, the everyone kind of agreed on what the facts were. What has now happened is, one, that people get their information from many more sources, media itself is so fragmented and you know there is no longer that consensus on the truth people have their ideologies or their visions of the world and whatever and they just want information that uh, sort of confirms that and we all get sucked into these echo chambers which get shriller and shriller as you know you compete to um, sort of express your own virtue within your selected echo chamber. And it seems to me that, you know, then you begin to wonder, what is this news thing? Is it just a battle of competing narratives that do facts even matter anymore? And, and you know, barring, uh, you know, small islands of excellence like um, NDTV and a handful of online independent sites, not the mainstream media, uh, it seems to me that everything else is about, uh, you know, this pitch battle of narratives. How does that sort of make you feel? I mean, I understand that NDTV's had its core value values and stuck to them throughout. But more and more in these times, it seems like an outlier. It is an outlier. And I completely agree with you because now it's become like the media has become ideologically divided in this country, uh, the way pretty much everything else has. And it, that's to me has taken, I mean, what I see, frankly, is a decay of an important institution in a democracy, which is a free press. And I see that not just in isolation, Amit, I see it as a larger decay of democratic institutions in the country as a whole, whether it is parliament. I mean, how much work are parliament committees doing, for example? Uh, how much, uh, look at the way bills are rammed through parliament without any proper debate and discussion, you know, even the finance bill. So you may have a big majority in parliament and you may have an overwhelming majority, but democracy is not about just the majority. It's about taking everyone along. So Look at the way parliament has been diminished. Look at the way the judiciary has abdicated its responsibility with the honorable exceptions, I may say, of some high courts, which to my surprise in the last few months have woken up, for instance, to the migrant crisis in a way that, you know, should really sort of wake up the Supreme Court of India, which waded into it much later. But if you look at the Supreme Court of India, which has sort of turned the other way on human rights issues, constitutional issues, on habeas corpus. It's, it's changed the meaning of that, uh, particularly when it comes to Kashmir. So when you see what is happening to us as a democracy right now, I feel that the decay of the media and the decline of the media as an institution in India 
uh, has to be seen in that context. Uh, I think in India, a big crisis also stares at us because of the way, I mean, you raised this question earlier about, you know, the structures and being dependent on, you know, certain parameters to, for instance, make money and TRPs. That's part of the problem that your media is actually dependent on the government for advertisements to survive. And that whole model and that whole system is utterly flawed. Uh, we have a media that does not you know, stand together and is not institutionally strong enough to fight back from government pressure or government intimidation. I mean, you'll have the odd statement from an editor's guild, but please tell me, what is the Press Council of India? What is its role? When has it ever done anything meaningful? Does anybody listen to the Press Council of India? You know, so that to me is the saddest thing, actually, just seeing the sort of decay uh, I, I mean, you look at America, you see that in, in America also mainstream media is constantly under attack. The president hates them. He abuses them, but he cannot ignore them. He still gives interviews. He still does press conferences. He still went to the New York Times editorial board and did an interview with them, despite, you know, all the names he calls the New York Times. Right. So institutionally, the media there is much stronger. And, you know, so they can call their president a liar and not worry about repercussions. And here we are the complete opposite. You know, we have become ideologically divided. The truth is a casualty. I'm sorry, but some of these news channels to me uh, are not news channels. I don't know what to categorize them as. They are, I mean, I used to laugh at them, Amit, at, at one point of time. I used to think it was funny that you had these 10 windows and you had the anchor screaming like a banjo <laughs> about something. But I don't think it's funny anymore. And And I realized in the last couple of years in particular, that what they're doing is they're putting targets on people's backs. You know, they're demonizing entire communities. They demonize Kashmiris all the time. They like, they want to paint all Kashmiri Muslims as pro-Pakistani terrorists, which Kashmiris are not. They will question the credentials. They have equated anyone who criticizes the government as that, as being anti-national or unpatriotic. You know, the government is not the nation, right? So they whip up that hysteria they whip up and they're doing it now. I mean, even with China, it's embarrassing when you look at the screen grabs of, you know, last uh, 10 days ago that they said stuff like Nepal kneels and China bows. And do you know how badly those kind of headlines and captions play out in those countries? People are very, very sensitive to that. You know, Nepalese friends have called and said how anger, angry and, and, and sort of uh, hurt they are seeing those kind of captions. Look what Nepal did to you. You know, and, and China bows and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I think they're doing far, far more harm than we we realize to to our social fabric, not just to journalism, but to, to society. And I think it's it's really it's just dangerous now. It's it's not funny anymore. You know, since you mentioned Nepal, this anecdote came to mind about this pitched battle that took place, I think, in the late 30s or 1940s, when people were discussing what shape an independent India could take, which was then in the future, of course. And Mahatma Gandhi said something to the effect of the Nizam of Hyderabad could be the new ruler, at which Veer Savarkar took offense and said, no, we must be a Hindu kingdom. The king of Nepal should be the king of India. <laughs> and contrast that yeah. with where we are. You know, I'm just thinking of the sort of contrast that you've seen, like in one of your interviews, you could quoted your dad as telling you, quote, don't editorialize and get all your facts right. Check with more than one source. 
get it right do not get it first stop quote and in contrast when i was uh, reading your uh, introduction to left right and center i'll quote what you said quote it is now anti national to even question the government so most tv channels today simply don't do it in an interview to ndtv arun shori called them north korean tv channels that essentially parrot the government line the raids on ndtv in june marked a turning point for free press in india as shori said it was meant to kill the chicken to frighten the monkeys uh, quoting a chinese proverb stop quote and but just looking at how the media is structured in india this seems so inevitable to me for example as you point out the government has so many levers with which it can pressurize media in the sense just looking at the print media you look at hto toi they have so many other business interests somebody will have a chemical factory somewhere there can be an it raid there similarly so much of media runs basically on money coerced from us uh, you know it uh, it runs on government advertisements and and the government uses that to basically uh, buy the media and use it as a lever to uh, pressurize the media and uh, similarly you also besides the carrot you also see the stick where you know cases of sedition are filed on a uh, journalist and there is a sort of a chilling effect in play as well you know ndtv itself of course has taken a lot of pressure there was a campaign to get advertisers to quit um, ndtv uh, and uh, you know there have been uh, income tax raids and all of that you know so just looking at this i mean do you think there's and, and the only sites that really survive are small online sites which are not dependent on all of this like uh, you know the very brave people at alt news and the wire and scroll and so on but beyond that you know do you think and, and but they are just below the radar mostly that's kind of why but uh, you know is that sort of one of the reasons that uh, you you're kind of glad to be getting i mean are you glad to be just getting out of this are you thinking to yourself right now not my circus not my monkey i've had enough of this shit you know partly yes uh to be honest amit but the thing is that i live and breathe news okay i love it i mean it's it's the only thing i know how to do well i've been a reporter i've editor everything and so like for me this is a passion which is why it makes me so angry to see what has happened to the media in the last few years and and you know it, it also just happened to be the the right opportunity i mean it's that you know this harvard thing you know it came along and i thought to myself uh, i mean i told them i said that are you sure you're interested i mean because i've never taught before and i'm not i mean it's very different to sort of talk to a room full of people as a one off and take questions but they were like no we're looking for people who don't come you know with that baggage of teaching and 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 would rather be able to teach through their own experiences and and so on so uh, i thought to myself that you know this is a great opportunity for me to actually take a step back from the madness of this place and to learn for me this is an opportunity to be a student all over again because i think i will be the student it's not that i will be you know the teacher this gives me an opportunity also to just learn to be in a very different atmosphere where i learn from the students i interact with and from the faculty there i can go and sit in lectures and i'm not relocating amit by the way it's a visiting role i'll be back and forth between delhi and boston so for me it's the best of both worlds and maybe i'll i'll you know start working on a book on the media or something you know while uh, you know while i spend time here in india but it's nice to be you know for 21 years this is all i've done all the time like it's 24/7 it's been tv earthquake ho gaya tum jao uh, plane crash ho gaya tum jao bombing ho gayi jao you know i mean go to the spot and of course in the last few years it was every time something happened go and anchor it so you know now it's nice to take a step back and it still connects me to journalism so it doesn't take me away from what i love but it 
hopefully will give me a different perspective and um let me give something back to it because i'm still very idealistic about it for some reason <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't get to speak to too many idealistic people, and I'm really glad you're getting a break after all these years uh, taking a grind. And our listeners will also now get a break, but we'll be back because we have a lot to discuss. If you enjoy listening to the Scene and the Unseen, you can play a part in keeping the show alive. The Scene and the Unseen has been a labor of love for me. I've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations, expanding my brain and my universe, and hopefully yours as well. But while the work has been its own reward, I don't actually make much money off the show. Although the scene and the unseen has great numbers, advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcasts. I do many, many hours of deep research for each episode, besides all the logistics of producing the show myself, scheduling guests, booking studios, paying technicians, the travel, and so on. So, well, I'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going, and that involves you. My proposition for you is this: for every episode of the Seen and the Unseen that you enjoy, buy me a cup of coffee, or even a lavish lunch, whatever you feel it's worth. You can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in/support and contributing an amount of your choice. This is not a subscription. The Seen and the Unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in. This is just a gesture of appreciation. Help keep this thing going. seenunseen.in/support Welcome back to the Seen and the Unseen I'm chatting with Nidhi Rasan and uh, Nidhi so far we've sort of been talking about how uh, television has changed but uh, uh, over the you know the 21 years that you've been in it but what has also changed is not just television itself but the whole media landscape surrounding it and social media is a significant part of that and uh, you know uh, you and i were just being nostalgic a little while back about uh, how peaceful and nice the days were before social media tell me a little bit about the kind of difference uh, that uh, you know uh, social media has made to the way people cover news and to people like you personally who cover the news well it's made a huge difference look um, the fact is that I think social media is great in in that it's a great source of immediate news. As a journalist, when you follow, let's say, the AP Twitter handle, Reuters, or any news organization's Twitter handle, you know that you're getting immediate updates. You know, and in the old days, you wouldn't get it so quickly. You'd have to wait for the flash to come up on on the news wires on PTI or AP or Reuters, etc. On, on you know what, which was connected to your office systems. So social media has a certain immediacy to it. Reporters directly tweet from a briefing about what is happening, you know, word by word, what is being said, statements that are coming in. So it's very quick, and that way it's a great source of information. But I mean, what it's also done is, I think, um, it's made news much more interactive, which is both great and also a pain. But on a serious note, it, I think it's good. It's good that. a lot of your viewers can tell you what they really think let's say of your show or of a particular story they give you feedback a uh, very often people flag important stories like for instance in this pandemic people have taken to twitter to tell us about the the way that you know hospitals had no beds you know and if they hadn't done that you know it would have taken much longer to get to know about how serious the crisis is for example in delhi you know about the shortage of beds uh, so i think in that way social media has played a great role and uh, i mean uh, the abuse aside i'm saying that when when there is a healthy conversation between you and someone who reads your work or watches your work then that's great 
but yes it's made reporting much more complicated i'll, I'll tell you for example when i went to cover uh, mr modi's visit to israel a few years ago i think it was 3 years ago uh, firstly you know cost cutting so i was covering it with the mobile journalism kit you know the mojo uh, just the cell phone and me went to uh, israel and uh, everyone else was there you know with their big cameras and their tripods and all but i had a i was really proud of the fact that we were doing it like this and kind of you know i stood there doing my piece to camera so first you have to worry about the technical part of it uh, where you know uh, frankly i was i was so distracted about the reporting part of it that i was so worried that the mic shouldn't be off the tripod shouldn't fall apart you know you know stuff like that because you worry so much about the technical part of it because you're doing everything yourself and then i almost the ambassador almost got run over by a, a truck because we were standing in the middle of the road doing an interview <laughs> you know talk about that so i'm like oh, you know i'm pulling him into the frame and then sasni heather was on that trip with me so she helped you know then because the entire tv media went after baby moshe who's not baby anymore so you know i need <laughs> to hold the phone for me while i chased his family down and said would you would you speak to us and you know at least she was there to help so it wasn't easy but then on that trip i realized we we just started doing uh, you know facebook live also which i didn't know what the hell that was until it happened because now i'm going and doing these stories about the indian community in israel and whatever and so in addition to doing my television story i had to first put out a web copy now everything is on the web first and then i have to do a facebook live okay so i was like ye kya hai and then i had to do that also and then you have to do your television uh, ob's also you know and 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 then deal with the technology and the technical issues and failures and all of that so it's not easy and that's what reporting is like on a day to day basis for a lot of young people today you know you are doing digital you are handling your social media accounts a lot of them are having to do youtube stuff separately and then you have the pressures from television so and plus you have to make sure you're actually getting your story right so there's a lot of pressure on reporters today and i have to say very honestly amit it was much more fun way back then you know i i personally think so that it was much more fun when one had the time and the and the space to be able to think about what what one had to write and do i still love the rush of hard news but just sometimes it's just overwhelming and i hats off to these kids you know who who sort of manage everything so seemingly effortlessly but it really really is not easy because you know even the physical demands of the job as you know are are very real i mean look at these reporters who've been out or reporting on the migrant crisis or just the state of or of the pandemic in general and then you juggle all these things together social media included it's not easy and you know now you know when you do it you don't just anchor a show then you have to identify clips to put out on social media by what will catch the audience's eye uh you know what are the things that you can sort of extract and make a headline so that it it gets viral on twitter it becomes viral on twitter because now that is also important although one good thing i'm really uh, about ndtv in particular is that we, we don't do the whole hashtag thing except on election day which is elections with ndtv so there's no like uh, you know hashtag like rahul gandhi get a haircut you know something like that <laughs> you know what i mean like you know or or what is that times now favorite hashtag lobby something about the lobby kaun si lobby hai ye pata nahi but they have something about the lobby every day ha huh? lobby lies or lobby uses chinese phones i don't know you know normally when i do an episode on something i research the subject very thoroughly but i have to confess that i've watched practically no news television for the last 10 years because i can't stand it uh, you know a couple of thoughts uh, come to my mind from what you uh, uh, just said the second perhaps leading to a question one is that uh, you know 
uh, it, it seems to me that as new technology comes up, there is an element of faddishness that comes into reporting in the sense of these all become boxes to tick. That Facebook life ka box tick karo, Instagram ka box tick karo, iska box tick karo, without a- enough thought going into what is happening to the trade-off uh, in terms of the effort that goes into ticking these boxes and the depth of the news. And the second, which I'm going to turn into a question is, of course, we've all heard, you know, Marshall McLuhan's famous saying about the medium being the message. And it strikes me that if, you know, so much of your time goes into putting stuff on Facebook Live and looking for clips to maybe put on Twitter or whatever, all these little disparate things that one now has to do, doesn't that affect the depth which you can uh, uh, pursue a story? And doesn't that then change the nature of the coverage in a negative way? It does, to be honest. I mean, to me, like I said, I preferred the old days where you could really spend time on a story and everything wasn't like some massive life and death event. And, uh, you know, social media has brought with it certain pressures. But, you know, you have to learn to adapt. That's the way life is. You know, things will evolve. I don't think, as some people have debated in the recent past, that television news is dead. Uh, It's certainly very, very problematic. There are huge issues with it in India in particular right now. But television viewership has exponentially shot up in the last few months. So there is a huge audience for it. We have to use that space responsibly. And, um, you know, we have to evolve with technology. And and ideally, you know, you have to have different resources for different things. So we also have an NDTV, a separate social media team, etc. But um, very often the reporters and anchors themselves have to get involved in that process. And it's exhausting, you know. I do think in the old days, one had more time to ponder over a headline. And I know, and also I think in, at this time, you know, like on social media every day, we all turn into experts, you know, uh, foreign affairs. Aaj to sab China ke expert hain, but kal to depression ke experts the. Or perso kya tha? To thai hi. But, you know, there was, uh, there was something else also. Uh, so, you know, anyway, everyone has an opinion on everything. And... Um, you know, very often, I mean, I'll tell you simple things like a press release will come. I cover, I used to cover the MEA. Uh, I have to quickly look for the, like, I don't have time to like sit and read it properly. You know, it's like quickly, quickly look for the two or three important news points and just get it out on Twitter, get it out on the NDTV social media handle, get it on air. And, you know, there's such a thing about, you know, that to me, I, I would, it stresses me out a lot. That's what I would say one would like to like look at things carefully, sift through them carefully. And that's just taken a, for me, at least it just took a bit of the sort of fun out of doing this on a regular basis. As you're saying this, a thought that strikes me, a question that strikes me uh, uh, rather, which is that, you know, you've done a lot of, you know, as opposed to a lot of the shallow news coverage of the modern age, you've done a lot of deep work in the past where you've, uh, you know, done work in POK, you've done work in uh, Tibet, like you pointed out after waiting a year for a visa. What is the work that you're most proud of in your career? And I'll make it a two-part question by saying that, is there something that you're not proud of that you look back and said, hey, I wish I hadn't done that? Ah, that's a good question. Well, I'm I'm proud of quite a few things. I mean, I'm proud of all the documentaries I've done. I've, I did quite a few and I, I was really glad because NUTV gave me the space to do them, whether it was the one in Tibet or the one in Iran. I, I went back to, I went to cover the London bombings of July 2007 as an on-the-spot reporting job. But then I went back a month later to do a bigger in-depth thing on how Muslims in Britain were coping with the sort of uh, the changes and then the, the way people were looking at them after that. The POK documentary certainly was something that I was very, very proud of also because it was a runner-up at the Asian TV Awards. And that was the year of the tsunami. And 
so the tsunami won and uh, and this came second and i was a bit worried that they would see think of it as being too political because it said pakistan occupied kashmir not administered kashmir and stuff like that and uh, but but you know they they saw merit in it and it was it it was a runner up uh, a story that is actually very boring to a lot of people but i am most proud of is my work on the india us nuclear deal uh, which was a story i obsessively tracked from beginning to end and that's how i got interested in foreign policy and uh, that was a very very difficult story to do because it's very technical it can be very you know um technical and sort of very dense and you know to break that down for tv viewers every single day and to make it interesting and then it became one of the biggest political stories of our time you know manmohan singh's government also f- nearly fell because of it it didn't but it could have you know there was a confidence vote in parliament on it so it just became like this this amazing story to track from beginning to end is there something i wish i shouldn't have done or that i'm not proud of um i don't know there's nothing i can think of offhand amit uh, but i'll tell you something which i've never said before sometimes i do have doubts about whether i should have thrown sambit patra out of that show that day for those of us who don't know what you're talking about what are you referring to there was then oh you don't know this are you serious i don't watch much news television i'm really sorry about this <laughs> i think i don't know was it maybe 3 years ago or 2 years ago uh, sambit patra was on my show and started shouting at uh, at us on air and saying that ndtv has an agenda and you know ascribing motives to us and i told him to leave i said that if uh, i'm sorry that i will not accept this accusation and if you don't want to be on this channel then go and you know if you're not if you're not going to apologize then leave and and i shot his mic down i mean it's it's really a, an infamous incident to to be honest and a lot of people were i mean the roys were very happy i mean everybody was the whole organization stood by me for doing that because every day you know you had bjp spokies sort of making digs at us all the time questioning our sort of uh, credibility etc and um, we got raided by the cbi as per in pranoy got raided by the cbi like 2 3 days later which was a coincidence but many people sought to draw links to it <laughs> uh, but uh, that's you know uh, and then the bjp stopped coming on ndtv completely and that stands to this day uh, officially they do not come on ndtv now at that time until today a lot of people most people tell me that you know you did the right thing somebody has to stand up and call these guys out etc etc but to be honest amit when i look back sometimes i look back and i think that maybe i shouldn't have and that maybe i should have said my piece and then let it go uh and that it would have been more uh democratic of me to to do it that way rather than just tell him to leave i don't know is it very conflicted about that but that is something i if i if i had if i had to relive that moment again maybe i wouldn't do it tell me something for someone who feels as strongly about values and issues and indeed the health of our democracy as you clearly do is that sort of like i can imagine myself losing my temper in a similar way uh, and i remember reading about the incident now that you described it but is that sort of emotional control hard for example when you are uh, let's say you're covering kathua and there are people who are sort of uh, defending the rapists or there are people who are defending garlanding the lynchers for example both issues on which uh, uh, you know you've sort of spoken out then at that moment does uh, you know on the one hand you're supposed to be this objective anchor and you're sort of you have to be calm and ask sharp probing questions but on the other hand how can the blood not rush to your head how do you deal with that how have you faced that conflict down see 
in my opinion there is absolutely no obligation to be quote unquote objective when you are anchoring what is meant to be an opinion based show it's fine because like newspapers have editorial pages right so these 9 o'clock bulletins can be the editorial pages of your channel in in that sense it's it's perfectly okay to take a position on something i'm i don't have a problem with that but i do have a problem with um when you know uh, you know to me there are certain things which are inalienable truths right and there are certain stories that do not have another side so for example politicians coming out in doing rallies in defense of rape accused and murder accused like in the katwa case to me that was indefensible there was no other side to the story to me when somebody is lynched and killed there is no other side to the story it's wrong okay so i think yes i mean i think we're all human we will get emotional i think it's a question of i think it's perfectly okay to be emotional also but you have to also know when to pull back and that's a line that only uh, an individual can draw i have to admit that some of the stories that have disturbed me the most in the last few years have been these stories it has been depressing actually and i've found myself often coming close to tears when one has had to have a, a discussion on akhlaq or, or 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 one of these horrific incidents that happened all these years and you actually have someone sitting in front of you trying to defend the garlanding of lynching accused or why the tricolor was draped on the men who were accused of killing akhlaq you know and and you just i mean you know a lot of people would sometimes criticize us and say that why do you call for instance um, why do you call rss spokespersons on the channel and i would say and i still say this that i'm sorry but whether you like it or not they are ruling the country right now you know they have been elected by the people and they represent what the government of india thinks at the moment so um, we are not legitimizing them the legitimacy has come from the last two general elections so you can't to me this sort of the other liberal argument you know that you cannot listen to the other point of view at all no matter how horrendous it is it's interesting because you know that whole debate right now that happened in the new york times over that edit page piece tom, by cotton tom cotton speech here yeah. and it was interesting that there were i think journalists more from our era who were like well you know he is an elected representative we may not agree with his views but he has a right to put them across and you know the the times has a right to put it in a context to to say we don't agree with it etc or whatever uh, but should it be blanked out completely you know so i i am conflicted on that question also right now but the fact is that i also feel it's important to confront people with who have those views and pin them down on that and and sort of shall we say shame them for some of the kind of open bigotry and hatred that they profess and i don't think there's anything wrong with that like like the hate speeches that some of these guys made during um the delhi elections i had a confrontation with some of the mps you can't just ignore them they're members of parliament for god's sake it's not about giving someone a platform but they are mps they've been elected they're going to stand up in parliament and say stuff they need to be held accountable for the kind of hate speech uh, that that they're spewing and i think we need to do that I couldn't agree with you more. It is, after all, our job to afflict the comfortable. So, sort of, you know, when you're speaking of politician guests on your show, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, of course, you, uh, you know, you've been doing the show left, right, and center, which is sort of a debate show between different points of view. So, um, it's a two-part question. Part one is that, given that 
people are inevitably going to take their party line and even if they are not from a particular party they are inevitably going to sort of take the line of whatever ideology or identity uh, they've chosen for themselves uh, don't all these debates become so predictable that you broadly know in advance what everyone is going to say that's part one of the question and part two is that then behind the scenes all of these people do what they do i think the incentives of politics makes politicians be behave in venal and reprehensible ways but outside of that political framework have you found not just politicians but generally people in public life to be different from what their public personas are like would you say that a politician you cannot agree with on uh, issues can also turn out to be a nice guy and a good person and there are these uh, you know other sides to them that you get to know yeah yeah absolutely i mean you see that all the time and yes you're partly right about you know these political debates in a sense becoming very sort of predictable but i want to say something here i want to say that why why is it that we in this country which is the world's largest democracy which is has which has this thriving political scene why are we so averse what is why is the word politicization a bad word it it shouldn't be in my view every major issue should be politicized and people as citizens as voters should be listening to what representatives are saying on those issues so that they can make up their mind on what side they are on on particular issues so for instance when people would say during the nirbhaya gang rape time are bhai don't politicize uh, you know the the sexual violence against women why not i mean i have been saying this for the longest time that You, you the problem is we haven't politicized these issues we we need to hold our publicly elected representatives accountable for the fact that women don't feel safe while walking on the street or that uh, you know convictions are abysmally low etc we need to politicize these issues and i at least would want to hear what each political party has to say about it so similarly even on foreign policy and security issues just because it's the congress or an opposition party raising it it doesn't means that it's wrong i think there are legitimate questions that you know need to be for instance you know now it's become sort of again anti national to to question anything about the armed forces or to question any intelligence gaps or intelligence failures i mean to me it is actually patriotic to raise those questions not just now but i'm talking about even earlier during the upa time that you know you need to ask you know why lapses happen for instance look at what's happening in china and ladakh at the moment you had a clear situation where you had a section of the media that was just trying to project a narrative of all is well kuch nahi hua it is a very small incident look at the way it has blown up the lack of transparency the lack of information that's coming out and i think the opposition while standing by the country and standing by the government is well within its rights to say boss you know we need answers also on why this happened and how this happened and please give us those answers so i don't think that there's anything wrong with that i think it's the way that those debates are structured the problem amit is that you know that that they are of course completely in, in these these shrill shouting matches you can have perfectly good conversations even debates if you want to call them that with people on different ideological from different ideologies sitting together different political parties that can be perfectly civil and yet disagree with one another where you don't have to be screaming at each other all the time you know but much of what's happening on indian television today is contrived it is you call the fringe you know you you decide that some guy in a long beard represents all muslims in india he does not or you decide that some guy wearing a saffron robe represents all hindus in india he does not 
right so you just you know kind of pit uh, two uh, religions against each other you start screaming in between and that's why it's been reduced to a farce and in my experience i've given this example often i actually found that if you do debates well and you have a good conversation on important issues it does make people sit up and think for example when the gang rape happened in delhi it was the first time i saw mainstream news television night after night on prime time talking about sexual violence against women and it forced the print media to make it a page one story as well and i i'm not joking i think i did a prime time show on that story like every day for the next like maybe two months you know and it made a huge difference because at least people were talking about it people were i mean people came out and they they were agitated and that was to me that that's good that in a democracy that that people were demanding accountability i mean not in the way that it turned out ultimately it just became about a hanging and not a bigger debate as it should have been about safety about about the judiciary speeding up cases and convictions and all but that apart i'm just saying that just even having that awareness to have that conversation it became really important so i think on china for example it is important to hear the opposition's voice so i don't understand this thing of thuthuing you know what uh, political parties think we elect them let's hold them accountable let's listen to what they have to say exactly couldn't agree with you more let's let's kind of get back to social media because uh, for a moment there we just discussed the positive side and uh, one can't really end with that because one of the you know the dark side of social media is of course the enormous amount of vitriol that is spread the rumors that is spread the abuse that uh, you know people are constantly confronted with and all of it especially harder for a woman so now you are on the one hand you're looking at social media closely for tips and new angles like this hospital has run out of bed or there are interesting points of view which you can take into account but on the other hand there is also uh, so much ugliness and it cannot but help affect you when this uh, happens you know the journalist kanika kohli had a thread i found quite moving on twitter recently about how she was personally so affected when the it troll farms came after her that she you know almost had an anxiety attack and had to kind of uh, go to the loo very moving thread and and you know and all prominent women kind of go through that how did you deal with that it's not nice amit it's not nice at all and uh, i mean i i really feel for karnika because i understand how how she would have felt it's you know the thing is that um on on social media on twitter in particular i don't know i mean it's sort of a free for all against women they'll say that we respect women and then you know they'll 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 abuse you in the next sentence and they somehow think that uh, talking about a woman's personal life or you know her her sex life or something is is somehow demeaning i mean it is it is extremely difficult as a woman to be on social media i would agree with that it's toxic and frankly i would not even be on twitter if it wasn't for the fact that uh, people would you know sort of creating these fake accounts in my name and tweeting and then people would message me on every day and say oh acha have you said this on twitter and i would say no that's not me so finally i had how many accounts can i complain against right twitter would keep taking them down but i can't like you know do it every week so i decided i had to come on at least have a verified account so that whatever is going out there is going out there in my name and that so those those fake accounts actually stopped after that but uh, otherwise i honestly don't find it um, fulfilling at all it is it is extremely extremely toxic particularly so for women and i understand where karnika comes from 
in in that because everyone deals with these issues differently i've developed a much thicker skin now than i had maybe like say 5 or 6 years ago when it really would affect me now it doesn't in that way but um everyone has different ways uh, to to deal with things not everyone will react the same way and that's why it's it's not a safe space for women that's for sure and do you have a hack to deal with it like uh, did you ignore notifications or you know do you just mute everyone who abuses you once so over time you see less I of it i just block now uh, i used to mute i was very polite but then a friend of mine said, hmm. why are you polite and he's on twitter as well and um he's like i just i just block abusers so anyone who abuses i block and i block out misogynists you know and those uh, that just are annoying because you can be annoyed uh i mute them and i'm sorry that's there's no free speech argument here you're free to speak na you go and speak and abuse and do whatever you want on your timeline i have i also have the right to not have to listen to your crap so i block you exactly no one's entitled to our attention and 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 exactly. the other sort of aspect of social media is that what social media does is that it polarizes uh the discourse in very drastic ways in the sense that the discourse becomes very tribal we form our own echo chambers and then we need to you know keep posturing to raise our status within our own echo chamber which can often mean sort of abusing the other side or whatever and it gets more and more polarized and what this means for liberals often is that you have all these online purity tests where you will have people who are you know perfectly good liberals in every way getting attacked by other liberals for not being liberal enough and i have seen this happen to you as well yeah. like even in the tom cotton case that's basically what it is david bennett the opinion editor who was made to resign is uh, uh, you know an impeccable uh, liberal in every way who was just following this basic journalistic uh, convention of giving the other side a chance to say their piece so that readers can judge for themselves and how do you feel about these sort of online purity tests and these mobs that descend upon you if you deviate from the party line well see the, the, that's the thing right that i'm glad that i don't fit into a particular box i am neither black nor white and like most people i'm somewhere in between you know and and that's perfectly okay with me i mean i have a certain view for example on the way india and and delhi handles uh, the situation within kashmir but i have a very different view on the way uh, on pakistan's role in kashmir so i can be both and i am not going to apologize for that you know so in any case the conservative right wing thinks i'm i'm too liberal and i'm not the conservative right wing at all but uh, i i just find that the so called liberals are actually often amit the most illiberal people you can come across in the way that they go after people for having a different point of view and i expect it of the extreme right wing because i ain't no friend of theirs and they ain't no friends of mine let's face it we are completely ideologically at odds right but uh, even i mean among liberals why can't someone have a nuanced point of view on something you can right and and there's nothing wrong with that and therefore that's why we get stuck in echo chambers i mean frankly to me that explains why a donald trump might get elected president again and why he got elected the first time because in america also you had these uh, echo chambers where you you know people were just not wis- willing to listen to what was actually happening on the ground and incidentally shekhar gupta shared a very good piece i don't remember who wrote it on on this whole thing about what's happening in american newsrooms and it had the the sort of um, the new york times resignation as an example of it about just how illiberal uh, liberals have become so you know frankly i now just wear it as a badge of honor i am who i am i am an individual i i am entitled to my opinions if i'm not liberal enough for you screw you doesn't matter
No, and it also strikes me that, you know, the thing about the extreme right is they wear their bigotry on their sleeve. Right. But the extreme left can dress it up in sanctimony, which, you know, irritates me a little bit more sometimes. Uh, I agree. And, uh, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, I, as someone who's covered the conflict in JNK has, uh, you know, seen personally what uh, it has what pakistan sponsored terrorism has done in the kashmir valley i have no qualms in calling out uh, pakistan's role in sponsoring terrorism and and kind of bloodshed it has unleashed in our country but at the same time i am critical of the way the government has handled things in kashmir with an iron fist particularly after the 5th of august last year you have detained people you've detained people for months on end a former chief minister is still under detention is this a democracy this is the world's largest longest internet uh, blackout you still don't have 4g internet up and uh, what the same rules of law do not apply to the people of uh, kashmir are kashmiris not our people are they not indians so i uh, you know you can be both you know you you can be both that's what i'm saying so i don't know i mean like this liberal thing of you know then they're like oh i mean you know oh she's talking about pakistan this way because you know she must be uh, feeling the pressure uh, to say that no that's always been my point of view my my documentary from pok which got that award did because you know it took that line that that it did and yet i'm somebody who is for dialogue between india and pakistan because i don't think war is a solution so i can be that also no i'm just saying that people are not black and white views are not black and white and that's the problem on social media and even on television frankly the moment you pit people in a debate as foreign against it becomes really banal and and you oversimplify it and and one of the ways i found of judging tribal thinking is that if you are against modi can you say even one good thing about him or if you're for yeah. him can you say even one bad thing about him and the answer is often no and then you know that in that case that's just tribal thinking because everyone contains multitudes and even the person you're against has done some good things and even the person you're for has uh, flaws that you should be awake to you know my next question is sort of it kind of strikes me and i'm again sort of thinking aloud here that when i look back in the last 25 years or so the one profession where i can see that women have visibly excelled and you know made an impression and become incredible role models is in tv journalism and i'm i'm of course thinking of people like uh, you know you and parka where uh, you know some of our finest uh, tv journalists are women that's indisputable and at the same time like does it sort of irritate you when you're covered not just as a great tv journalist but as a tv journalist who's a woman for example i was searching online for articles in of you and interviews of you and i came across this piece which was headlined no skirting of issues which within the piece had lines like you know uh, quote the importance of dressing cannot be dismissed shop quote and then quote again planning her outfit on a daily basis is one of the first thing she probably does in the day i, I don't uh, remember she got mortified this this came in verve you know so i don't know what the journalist must have asked to get you to talk about your daily outfit planning uh, <laughs> and i think you correctly put her in a place by saying that when i wake up i'm thinking of stories and i just pick up the first clothes <laughs> that come to mind i think i remember this now i think she was quite gutted because i actually honestly don't remember the last time i thought about what I, what i had to wear but yeah that's that's a funny uh, thing that you reminded me about yeah god and does it become irritating when you know people will try to put you into a box and think of you as a woman journalist or a kashmiri pandit journalist and just look at you in that box does does that can which you wouldn't do yourself as a journalist i don't find the woman box to be honest because it's true i mean uh, look mm. the fact is that um for for women things are are generally much tougher in any profession and you know i think it's great when women sort of become role models for other young women 
and their peers and you know are able to break certain glass ceilings and i think that's what's great about ndtv in particular because i i was telling someone yesterday who was talking to me about uh you know my journey as a woman journalist and she was like i'm sure you faced biases and i said actually i haven't i mean because i've lived in this bubble in ndtv where most of our editors have been women our primetime anchors have been women gender was never a factor when an assignment was was given to you whether it was an earthquake or or a riot somewhere uh, of course you took care of basic safety but you know it gender wasn't a factor so apart from you know some sort of leery remarks by some people here and there when one one step outside that i'm glad that i was you know in this environment where it was really different but so i don't mind the woman part of it you know i i i'm okay with that um and to be honest no i mean no no one's asked me since that interview about what lipstick shade is my favorite or something because <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that by the way i really like lipstick and that's still you know i mean that's who i am okay just just keep that in mind i love i love lipstick and i love uh, kajal at which point i have to ask you what is your favorite shade this always timeless red amit <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so you know we have 10 minutes to go before you have to head out so i'm not going to ask you about a subject which you know we could discuss in a full episode which is of course kashmir which you know you've seen up close as a journalist you have that personal element with it i don't think we can do it justice in the few minutes that we have left so i'll sort of um, ask my standard question with which i end a lot of my episodes where i ask guests on the subject of their choice what gives you hope and what gives you despair so looking at the indian media where we are today where you know on the on the one hand you have this polarization and this race to the bottom in tv news but on the other hand you also have uh, the growth of technology and you know the unknown unknowns which might change everything for the better looking say 10 years into the future what gives you hope and what gives you despair i want to first say that i don't think that the race to the bottom is just on television and i want to say very clearly that i think it's in the media as a whole including the print media because when you look at the reporting that is done uh I know that a lot of it even in our newspapers is just government spin it has become dependent on government handouts and press releases I'll give you an example and I think all of us in the media need to reflect on this if certain sources quote unquote are telling you that x number of chinese soldiers have been killed you know in this battle that happened the other day why aren't they seeing it on record you know this happened during balakot as well where suddenly sources started appearing and and I knew who the source initially was which is why people went with it but to me it's deeply problematic when the media is putting out unverified stuff and not demanding that the government go on record with certain things so it has become uh, uh, unfortunately even in the print media a lot of it is spin and press release journalism i'm tired of reading pieces about why ex politician is sleeping only 4 hours a day i'm tired of reading op-eds by the way also by ministers and uh, you know only opposition leaders and you know with with no nuance at all so uh, you know print i think is has also gone down that road uh, to the bottom what gives me hope is those that do stand out despite the pressures uh, that are there which is as you mentioned uh, there are some web portals that are doing a great job of that i think there are still a couple of newspapers that are doing a good job like the indian express uh, and the hindu with their flaws ndtv i'm not saying we're not uh, and, and ndtv is not flawed there there are flaws with us also but uh, you know we we're all holding our heads above the water and doing the best that we can and uh, you know the rest of them frankly they they don't inspire much hope but i do get 
hope from the rest of from the examples that stand out i mean that the fact that there are will, people who are willing to push back it, that gives me a lot of hope and in any case i don't like to despair so i think i'd i'd rather be hopeful thanks so much for coming on the show nidhi i i hope you have a good time at harvard and if you can please put your course out as a mooc so other people like me can also uh, sort of take it and learn from a distance but in any case all the best and i'm very sure that we haven't heard the last of you thank you so much amit no i don't know how to keep quiet so i think <laughs> i'll be around thanks so much it was nice talking to you ditto thank you so much If you enjoyed listening to this episode you can follow Nidhi on Twitter at @nidhi you can follow me on Twitter at Amit Verma A M I T B A R M A and in case you haven't yet signed up for this exciting course I am teaching called TikTok and Indian Society well it begins on Wednesday June 24th so hop on over to seenunseen.in/tiktok to check it out also do check out my new weekly economics podcast co-hosted by Vivek Call called Econ Central you'll find it at econcentral.in or in your podcast player of choice you You can browse past episodes of the scene and the unseen at sceneunseen.in. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of the scene and the unseen? If so, would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to sceneunseen.in/support. and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking thank you <laughs>